0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Everything important in our life lies far beyond our explanations. When you fall in love, when you're moved by a sunset, when a forest fire suddenly wipes you out, when a virus suddenly forces you to stay at home, We can't really explain any of that. And yet it's the main force that's shaping most of our days. And explanations are almost like little boxes we place on this tidal flood that have nothing to do with anything and can't begin to explain the flood or to to stop it in its flow. So that's the shortcoming of religion, I think, is if it's trying to put a box on eternity or if it's trying to give a reason for something whose only power lies in the fact that it exists far beyond the reach of reason.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Pico, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: I'm really, really happy to be here. Thank
0: you. Oh, it is my pleasure to have you here. Um, You have a new book out, The half Known Life in Search of Paradise. um, And I have known about your work for quite some time. I read your other book, The Art of Stillness, and absolutely loved it. Uh, so, you know, having sort of dug into your body of work, I wanted to start by asking what I think is a, a very sort of relevant question, given the nature of your work, and that is what spiritual or religious beliefs were you raised with? And how did those end up impacting the choices that you have made with both your life uh, and your career?
1: Well, I love that question. I'm not I'm not sure if any of this applies to you, but I was born to Hindu parents. Both my parents are from India. Yep, but likewise. In- yeah, I guess that part. Um, but I was born and grew up in England. So all the schools I went to were Anglican. And I've lived for 35 years in deeply Buddhist Japan. I've been traveling with His Holiness the Dalai Lama for 48 years. So I've learned a little bit about Buddhism. And then at one point, I um, spent four years trying to educate myself on Islam. So I'm a sort of typical global creature insofar as I've never actually given myself entirely to one tradition, but I feel I've been lucky enough to learn from many of them. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of my life now, I go back and forth between always spending the autumn in Japan, because I think Buddhism is a great teaching about impermanence and suffering and even death. And the beauty of the Japanese autumn is you have blazing blue skies, 70 degree cloudless skies, even in the middle of November. And all around, um, this festival of reds and golds of the turning leaves, even though the days are getting shorter and darker. So it's a sort of emblem of what they say in Japan, that life is about joyful participation in a land of sorrows. How do you make the most of the fact that nothing lasts? And then in the spring, I come back here to California, which I know you know well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I spend my time often with a group of Benedictine monks in Big Sur. And of course, Big Sur is already this radiant place. And in the Easter time, I'm learning about the light and resurrection and all those things. Um, So I've always been bad about giving myself entirely to a single circle or community. But uh, I've always been glad that uh, I haven't closed off opportunities and that I'm eager to take uh, wisdom from anyone. Being
0: raised by Hindu parents in uh, another country, one thing I I always wonder is how your parents retained a sense of culture and integrated the culture while also allowing you to experience the culture that you are up in. Because one thing that I have often thought about uh, is about how things get passed on from generation to generation. Like my sister is married to Bengali guy, but we're from South India. And I keep thinking about their son and what language he's going to speak. And I think to myself, well, if I don't marry an Indian girl, probably the first thing to go will be language. Um, So I wonder, you know, how do you, how did your parents uh, retain and instill cultural traditions, but also allow you to experience your own in the country that you grew up in?
1: Yes, such a good question. And actually, I think I'm very different from many diaspora Indians, as it were, uh, insofar as my parents were theosophists. So although they were born into Hinduism, theosophy is about steeping oneself in all the traditions of the world. And beyond that, they were both philosophers. And my f- mother explicitly was a professor of comparative religions. So she, Knew everything about Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and Christianity. Uh, And the other curious aspect, maybe, of my parents is a generational thing, is that they grew up in British India. So my father, as you know, came from South India, my mother from North India, and the only language they had in common was English. All their education was at the hands of Christian or Catholic nuns and and teachers, uh, and they know the Bible. Inside out, they had to learn all that stuff growing up in India, so I didn't grow up in a very Hindu household, except that my parents were both vegetarians and they didn't drink by, by choice. But I didn't get so much of Hinduism, but what I did get was that you know my parents were friends with the Dalai Lama, and my mother could answer every question about the Old Testament I might ever have, and uh, they knew about all the other traditions, and in fact, although my first name is Siddharth, the name of the Buddha. And my second name, Pico, comes from Pico della Mirandola, who was a Catholic heretic in the Renaissance who went from Plato and all the great religious traditions. So in some ways, there was a different kind of challenge from what so many um, of my Indian friends in England or the United States have, Uh, as you said, trying to bridge languages and trying to bridge religions, because in my parents' case, they only spoke English. I never heard another language growing up. And um, they were already really at home in every religious tradition. So I never had that conflict, if, it, if that's what it is, between, say, Hinduism and the cultures of the West. Yeah, um, they, they thought of England as a kind of suburb of Bombay.
0: Gil,
1: mm. you know, something that I often
0: find when I talk to people like you and, and many of the people that have been on the show is they were exposed to you know, this kind of teaching, whether it's self-improvement or spirituality at an early age, and yet, I always wonder at that age, what your perception uh, and your experience with this kind of knowledge is versus now when you look back in retrospect with age, because you know, I'm an avid surfer, which you may have, have known. An I, did thing know. I found was that, you know, I saw surfing as a spiritual experience, but I see kids in the water. And I always wonder, I was like, do kids just, do they see the spiritual aspect of this or are they just playing? So um, how is your understanding of the things that your parents have taught you about both spirituality and religion and the experiences you've had of course, um, changed with
1: age? So you're absolutely, absolutely right. I, and of course, all the time I was growing up, I didn't r- realize what it ha- is to have Tibetan Buddhist monks in my living room and all these amazing books around the wall and probably was running in the opposite direction until <laughs> life caught up with me, which I, I suppose is the way it as you said, it often happens, and I remember when I was young, I really felt I'm going to make my own destiny, and uh I'm going to create it utterly separate from my family and my schooling and everything I grew up with, uh, and didn't have any need for religion, and really felt I knew it all and One thing I've enjoyed about getting older is to find I don't know a thing, and that life has much richer and more interesting plans for me than I ever could have had for life. Uh, and that as we all find in the midst of loss <laughs> and challenge and everything that life brings to us, we turn for guidance and, and sustenance. Um, one of the interesting things that, that happened in my life was that when I was in my twenties, I was living in New York City and I was really leading the life I might have dreamed of as a, a teenage boy. I had a great job with Time magazine and an apartment on Park Avenue and really interesting colleagues. And I was covering world affairs so I could travel all around the world, even on my holidays. And I thought the challenge with this very rich and interesting life is I could become hostage to it and I could wake up one day and realize I'm 70 years old and I'm close to death and I've never lived and I've never explored other options. So while I was in my 20s, having enjoyed that life for four years, I decided to move to what I thought would be the opposite or the complement life, which was, a year in a temple in Kyoto, Japan. And I arrived in the temple with all the ideas I'd had from Midtown Manhattan. And of course, the temple was very different from what I imagined. It didn't mean just sitting on a wooden platform under the full moon (laughs) meditating, composing haiku. It meant scrubbing floors and shoveling leaves and really hard work. So my year in the temple only lasted a week. But I then ended up in another basically empty single room on the back streets of Kyoto, no telephone, no toilet of my own, nothing really. And I thought whatever happens here is going to be um different from what I experienced in, in Manhattan. And the two things I should say here, it sounds like a, a tidy kind of parable, is that 34 years later, I still live in a two-room apartment near Kyoto, and one way or another, I've I found the life I was seeking in my 20s. So my intuition to go and lead a simpler, purer life was exactly correct. But just as you say, I was too young to understand that and to to find that life in my 20s. I made the first move to come to Kyoto. I left the temple and now my life is probably as monastic as the life uh, I had imagined then, even though I have a wonderful Japanese wife in the same room. The other thing that was interesting was after seeking out wisdom on the furthest corners of the earth, everywhere from Kyoto to uh, Tibet, I came back uh, to my family home here in California. The house burnt down and I lost every last thing I had in the world in a forest fire. And so for many months, I was sleeping on a friend's floor. And another friend came in one day and he saw me there and he said, look, you can do better than this floor. And he told me about a quiet place, uh, four hours up the coast, uh, where for just $30 a night, I would have a bed of my own and beautiful ocean views and three meals a day, uh, and access to hot showers. And I thought, well, this has to be better than sleeping on the floor. So I got in my car and I drove up the coast to Big Sur, California, which of course is already a radiant place where all the calendars fall away and you're already in this kind of transcendent landscape. And I went into this uh, Benedictine monastery, and it was the last place I wanted to go because I'd had 15 years of Anglican schooling where we had to go to uh, chapel every morning and chapel every evening. I'd had all the hymns and uh, crosses I ever could want in a lifetime. So it was not the place I would naturally go to. But as soon as I stepped into that silence, all my anxieties, all myself fell away. And so now I've been going back to that place. I've stayed there more than a hundred times over the last 32 years. And I'm always amused in retrospect how I went to the other side of the world in the hope of staying in a monastery in Kyoto, Japan. I lasted a week. I ended up living almost as much as I can in Japan, but I found the monastery of my dreams just up the road in California in, again, uh, a Catholic context from the tradition that I thought I was running away from. So again. It was a reminder that life has (laughs) better plans for us than we have for it.
0: What you just said, life has better plans for us than, uh, you know, we have for it It really struck me because I I think that, and maybe this is a very Western thing, but, you know, from an early age, you know, we start asking kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we start making plans. And to your point, those things never turn out the way we think they will. Uh, If there's anything that I've learned from the life I've lived, it's turned out nothing like I thought it would. And in many ways, that's been a blessing. But what is it about Human beings that makes them want to try to control what is inherently uncontrollable, particularly when it comes to making plans for their life. Like we sit down at the beginning of the new year, we set all these goals, we you know write in all these journals, uh, we sign up for workshops, and yet there's this sort of serendipity that happens, and we resist that so much.
1: Yeah, no, um, I think it's it's in the nature. It makes sense for every human being when young to chart out a course and. When young, we do assume we're in control and that things can go very much uh, the way we want them to be. And that's, I think, not a terrible thing. I remember, you know, I grew up in the age before GPSs, So any day if I wanted to go to the airport, I'd get out a map and I'd work out exactly which roads to take to get to the airport. And almost certainly I would get lost. But the illusion of control and the illusion of knowledge and the thought I imagined I had a sense of how to get to the airport actually helped me then compared with if I were just starting blind. It's just like as a writer, I will often make a plan and I will often make an outline for a book, even though deep inside me, I hope and I'm confident that as soon as I begin doing it, the outline will be overturned and the book will take on a life of its own and our lives take on a life of their own, as it were. So I don't think there's anything inherently bad about uh, wanting to make a plan. But as you said, the older one gets, the more one sees that uh, one's one's plans are secondary to um, to the way that life is going to work out. You know, in my recent book that you mentioned, The Half-Lone Life, I have a lot about driving around different countries, whether it's Iran or Sri Lanka or North Korea. And in almost every chapter, I'm in the passenger seat. And that's not an accidental detail because I realize I'm in the passenger seat in life. When I was 20, I was convinced I was in the driver's seat and I could map out the trajectory of my life. And now I realize I'm at the mercy of forest fires and uh, viruses. And also, as you were suggesting, wonderful, unexpected surprises. And so I'm happy really to give myself over to life uh, more and more, uh, knowing that whatever mm. it comes up with will, uh, will interestingly challenge me.
0: Speaking of trajectories, I just, I'm talking to you. I don't get the sense that you were raised with sort of the stereotypical Indian child narrative of doctor, lawyer, engineer as the trajectory to a good life, a stable life. And, and, you know, I, I realize the value of that, of course, in, in retrospect, because, uh, as I've kind of discovered with age, my parents really didn't have much of a choice because in the time they grew up in and probably very much similar to your parents, like, their sort of outcomes in life were fairly binary. It was either poverty or stability. So for you, you know, knowing that you're going to pursue this life as a writer, which is inherently uncertain, where nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible, what was your parents' narrative about making your way in the world?
1: Well, I'm really grateful uh, to my parents because they share, I think, the characteristic of many Indian and perhaps Asian parents. Education was very, very important for them. And I realize now that they spent a large percentage of their salary, making sure that I could go to um, very good schools. So they made that investment. Uh, they weren't thinking in terms of <laughs> uh, medicine, business, or law. But I think secretly, because they were both academics, they were hoping that um, I would become a professor. And so I was mm-hmm. determined at an early age, I would never become a professor. and never become a professor. <laughs> and then, you know, I think you're too young, but there will come a moment when you look in the mirror and you see your father. And you order at a restaurant and you'll hear your mother uh, and you'll suddenly realize whatever I thought I was doing in my life, I can't run away from my blood and my DNA. And so here all these years later, it seems like my interests are fairly philosophical. Um, I was a professor for three months, a couple of years ago, and probably I've, I've become exactly the person my parents would would hope for, but through a very zigzagging course. But I'm, so they, they were never concerned about material wealth. But I think they were very concerned Mm -hmm. with inner wealth, which already is a nice thing to be a beneficiary of.
0: Yeah. No, it's funny you say that because my dad is a professor and uh, in a lot of ways, I realized, what do I do when I speak to audiences, when I I do the show? And to some degree, I'm a teacher.
1: Yes. Yes. Same thing. Exactly. Yeah. I love that.
0: Yeah. So... You had mentioned sort of not belonging to any one religion and kind of, um, you know, steeping yourself in, in multiple traditions. Um, I had uh, Gregory Roberts, the guy who wrote Shantaram here, and I was asking him about the difference between religion and spirituality. And the thing that struck me so much about what he said was that religion has bankers and lawyers, spirituality doesn't. And And so in a lot of ways, I I wonder, you know, you've been exposed to all these traditions, yet at the same time, so many sources of conflict in the world are often the byproduct of religion. You know, for example, in India and Pakistan, like Kashmir, which I know you wrote about in the book. So a couple of questions come from this. Um, One, why is that? You know, why do we have these sort of sources of conflict as a byproduct of religion? Uh, Two, what do we do about it? And three. What are the commonalities that you have found between each of these traditions that you have uh, steeped yourself in?
1: Yeah, I I think I'll probably concentrate on the first two of those three questions. And as you know, I almost conclude my book um, with a line from the very wise Franciscan uh, Father Richard Rohr, who says, as priest, he says, remember, the point of life is not to be spiritual, it's to be human. And as you know, and as I said before, I've, I've spent 48 years regularly talking and traveling with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And I'm always impressed at many things about him. But one of them is that he's one of the most revered religious presences on the planet. And yet, um, he brought out a book a few years ago called Beyond Religion. And as everybody knows, he always stresses science. And the word that he emphasizes over and over again is secular, precisely because, as you said, He's had a front seat view on all the ways in which religion can tear us up and can divide us, even though each religion hopes to bring us together. And I think he knows that really what brings us together is our human experience, our human hearts, something that lies beyond doctrine and text and the explanations religion gives for the world. And that's why I think the Dalai Lama, in some ways, he speaks to his own community as a religious leader, but he's really speaking to the rest of the world as a human being. And he's always stressing that he has the same sorrows and worries and uh, irritations sometimes as all the rest of us. And I think one of the beautiful things about the Dalai Lama is, for example, he delivered a long series of lectures on the Christian gospels to a Christian community and tears came to his eyes when he was describing some of the parables of Jesus. He's called himself a, a defender of Islam. He turns to rabbis for uh, guidance about how to sustain a culture outside its original territory. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time going to Jerusalem, for example, and it dramatizes exactly what you're saying. Because on the one hand, the great city of faith is a city of conflict, not just between the three great monotheisms, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism actually within them. Because, you know, the Sunni Muslims are at odds often with the Shia Muslims and the ultra-Orthodox Jews are angry with their secular brothers. And when you go to one of the holiest places in Christendom, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there are six Christian orders sharing the same space, sleeping under the same roof. And if one of them steps an inch over the other's territory, they start hitting each other with brooms. So it's a perfect reflection of what I think we see, as you said, in Kashmir and everywhere, especially right now in the world, which mm-hmm. is more connected than ever before and more divided than ever before, which is the problem with religion is the problem with any ideology, which is, I think my way is the only way. And uh, I think I know better or I know different from, than you. Uh, and that religion can so easily become a matter of dividing us into us versus them, rather into what His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls the big we, and yet the other, and yet none of us wants to be without the world of spirit and an inner life. And so I, who's not a Christian or Jew or a Muslim, when I go to Jerusalem, I'm moved almost to tears by something in that place, which has deep charisma, as people have. There's a magnetism about Jerusalem that has me every morning in the pre-dawn dark walking the church of the Holy Sepulchre, even though I'm not a Christian, and sitting in one little rocky chapel in one side in front of a guttery candle, and feeling just deeply moved and cleansed by it in ways I can't begin to explain, but I feel this is a holy place. And what humans do with holiness is not so exalted, usual, usually, but that doesn't diminish the power and the sanctity of the holy, just as with natural beauty all around us. Humans often make a great mess of nature, but nonetheless, nature takes us out of ourselves and moves us in very mysterious ways. People often talk about being spiritual and not religious. And sometimes I think there's a case for being religious but not spiritual. In other words, religion does offer things. And when I go up to spend time with my monks, I'm reminded of the value of community, which is one thing. Religion gives us I'm reminded of the value of tradition they're walking in the same footsteps as people in their order have been doing for a thousand years, and I'm reminded of um, the importance of faith because in their remote big sir home, they're often cut off from the world by winter storms for seven months on end. They have no revenue, All the monks are being helicoptered out, and the more things go wrong, the more they're convinced that um, things will go right in the end. so I do think that religious Organizations have a lot to offer us, but for those who are not drawn to religion, um, still religious places can move us in surprising ways. Uh, when you asked about the commonalities, I think everything essential is shared between all the major traditions, and it's only their elaborate footnotes and, and sometimes their texts that uh, they try to create divisions and make barriers. But Insofar as they're all trying to urge us to a sense of kindness, for example, and a sense of responsibility, uh, that speaks to every human, which is why the Dalai Lama often will say, my religion is kindness. And he never wants somebody in the West to become a Buddhist. In fact, he comes to California and tells people from this tradition, please don't become a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And, and please don't denigrate your own tradition. But any of you, whether you have a belief or not, capable of looking after the people around you. And that's the really important thing. I love the way that he sometimes says, uh, religion is like tea, which is something that adds flavor and savor to life. It's a wonderful luxury if you have it, but the real water without which we can't live is just basic human kindness. That's the non-negotiable part.
2: Ready to pop the question?
0: it makes me wonder so many things uh, about this like you know despite that you have somebody like the Dalai Lama you know talking about you know his religion is kindness yet you know we have war we have conflict um over religion often and is there any solution to this like why is it that the rest of the world doesn't think like this and I think the, the the thing that struck me most uh, about the section on Jerusalem was when you mentioned the sign that says "No explanations inside the church, please."
1: Thank you, thank you. That's the central uh, sentence in that chapter and in the entire book, um, and that's why I called that book "The Half Known Life," because again, the older I've, when I was young, I assumed I could explain everything or find an answer to everything, and again, the older I've gotten, the more I see. Everything important in our life lies far beyond our explanations when you fall in love when you're moved by a sunset, when a forest fire suddenly wipes you out, when a virus suddenly forces you to stay at home. we can't really explain any of that, and yet it's it's what the main force that's shaping most of our days and explanations are almost like little boxes we play we place on this tidal flood that have nothing to do with anything and can't begin. To explain the flood, or to to stop it in its flow, so that's uh, yes, that's the the shortcoming of religion. I think is if it's trying to put a box on eternity, or if it's trying to give a reason for something whose only power lies in the fact that it exists far beyond the reach of uh, reason. So you're absolutely right. And in terms of the divisions of the world, my thoughts, especially in this book, is our only hope is to realize we don't know very much, that we're not in the right, and that therefore we have to learn from almost everybody. And the Dalai Lama, whom many people would see as a great figure of wisdom, he travels the world as a student, not a teacher. And I know because I'm by his side for every minute of the eight hours of his working day, year after year after year, and he'll come down in the elevator to a crowded lobby and a lot of people are there because they've heard the Dalai Lama is in town and they're all pressing around him to get blessings or advice or just to touch his hand. And a little six year old boy will come up to him with an offering and, and tell him something. And the Dalai Lama will listen to that six year old boy as if he's listening to a Buddha. And of course, not caring whether that boy is, is, is Christian or Muslim or, or nothing at all. And. That's why the other central figure in this book for me is the Cistercian monk, uh, Thomas Merton, who who spent 27 years in his uh, monastery, Gethsemane, in Kentucky. And then finally he got a chance to go to Asia and he had three wonderful conversations with the Dalai Lama and the Buddhist monk and the Catholic monk instantly recognized one another as brothers and shared techniques about meditation and everything else, the way An NFL player meeting another NFL player would do. And then uh, Merton went to Sri Lanka and he had his great moment of realization in front of two Buddha, Buddhist statues. And the Catholic monk for 27 years felt he'd come to all his, all the understanding he needed in front of two Buddhist statues. And then he died four days later. But in both cases, these are people who don't believe that they know everything, or that their way is the only way. And I think one of the reasons why the the world is ever more divided now is that it's so easy to surround ourselves with people who think like us and feel like us and maybe who look like us and, and to form tribes, uh, which don't want to have anything to do with the rest of the world. And, uh, I think the only solution is, uh, understand that the person on the other side of the street or of the fence knows at least as much as you. Yeah.
0: yeah. You know, there's something that I was just contemplating yesterday as I was journaling, and it's this idea of what, uh, I, I don't remember who came up with the phrase, the unexamined life. Uh, you may probably, because you might have read more books about this kind of stuff than I have. Um but then I remember thinking, okay, we have an unexamined life and then you have an over examined life. And I, my conclusion was that the unexamined life leads to a lack of self-awareness, but the over examined life leads to an abundance of anxiety, which I think is very common in sort of personal development circles and you know, people who are looking for self-improvement. We often turn outward for answers uh, as opposed to inward until we hit a point of diminishing returns, but we don't even recognize that we have reached that point of diminishing returns. Why do you think that
1: is? Well, I love that phrase, the overexamined life, uh, and I absolutely agree with you. I remember when the pandemic broke out, my friend who is a prior of this Benedictine monastery in Big Sur sent around a message to everybody, and he just said, um, "Remember, the best cure for anxiety is taking care of others." Uh, in other words, don't, in this instance, don't live in your head, don't dwell on and many things you have to be anxious about. Reach out to somebody else because that person is in need. And again, these are all cliches, but they're cliches because they're true when you were asking before about what what cuts across our divisions. When we're walking down the street and we some, see somebody fall on the sidewalk, many of us will reach out to help her. And we're not asking if she's if she's Jewish or Muslim or Christian or, or Buddhist. We're just responding to her in a human level. And I think that speaks for the deepest part of us, that sometimes the mind compromises by by starting to create these divisions. And I think it's the mind that makes the divisions that we're generally um, trying to escape. So I think the over-examined life, as you say, is, um, is really what uh, I want to get away from. Again, during the pandemic, the Dalai Lama was saying, as he always does, Difficulty is non-negotiable. You know, as from the Buddhist point of view, all of us suffer, if we're lucky, um, old age and all of us suffer sickness and every one of us suffers death. So given all that suffering is the basis of life, let's not compound the suffering with our thinking. And he always points out that suffering is not the same as unhappiness. That, for example, the difficulty, in uh, the financial losses, the anxiety of the pandemic, everybody on the planet was engaging with that. But some people during the pandemic were seeing that even as it was making things impossible, it was making things possible. Even as it was closing many doors, it was opening doors. And I think most people, by living differently during the pandemic, began to think differently. And now they're making lives much closer to the ones they, they always had. So it's, um, it's a long way of saying I absolutely agree with you that our inner resources are the only ones that we have to turn to. That when suddenly a loved one is in the ICU, uh, all the books you've read, all the money you've earned, the resume you've accumulated, none of that's really going to help. The only thing wow. that will help the person in the bed and yourself is whatever inner savings account, um, inner resources you've developed. But at the same time, I don't think those are resources of the mind and of examination or of explanation. And I do think they have to do much more with, of course, the soul or spirit or those indefinable things that you gradually cultivate, often just through experience and sometimes Mm -hmm. suffering and sometimes through understanding that an argument with reality is one you'll always lose. In other words, during the pandemic, not being angry that things aren't turning out the way you wanted, but to be reminded to be humble. This is, you know, most things in life are not going to turn out the way we want it. But that doesn't mean that life is unfair or difficult. And it was interesting for me because going back and forth uh, all the way through the pandemic, I was going every few weeks, flying back and forth between here in California and Japan. So this very young culture and a very old culture. And throughout the pandemic, Japan really was living exactly as normal. All the kids were going to school trains were crowded, everybody was masked and is still masked to this day. And I think it was because that's an old culture that for 1400 years has been dealing with viruses and earthquakes and fires and plagues. And and they know that that's the nature of life. So they weren't surprised when a new obstacle came along and, and they calmly dealt with it. And the Japanese government said this is a state of emergency, but at the same time, life continued as normal as if life is always a state of emergency. But There was none of my friends there seemed disrupted or upset about the pandemic. And then I would fly into LAX and I would encounter Mm -hmm. great panic and rage and anxiety. And uh, so it was a very strong reminder, both on a cultural level and on an individual level, that life is always going to throw us challenges. And as you said perfectly, the only resources we have are inner ones, but they don't have to do with the examination
0: you know, you mentioned sort of a loved one in the ICU and, and, you know, I've had uh, the opportunity to talk to a lot of people like yourself, people who've lost parents. And, And one thing I have always realized from talking to these people, reading all these books is that, you know, something as painful as losing a parent, no book will help me ever understand that until I experience it. And I remember somebody who was looking at translating our content to another language had heard a couple of episodes and she said, you must be the most self-actualized person in the world. I was like, that's hilarious. Uh, The reason I do this work is because I'm probably the least self-actualized person in the world. (laughs) Um, But, you know, speaking of escaping reality, you say in the book that our one task is to make friends with reality. I could imagine them whispering, which is to say with impermanence and suffering and death, the unrest you feel will always have more to do with you than with what's around you. And then you go on to say, the notion of external paradise is one of the main illusions and projections we have to sweep aside as we might a sand mandala. And it made me wonder, one, you know, speaking of loss, you have this moment in your life where a fire, you know, takes away everything. And I, I've heard two sort of versions of this story. One is basically that you're suddenly free of all the things that you own. And so now you're truly free. But of course, you've also lost things that you can never regain. For example, things like photographs, right, which can never be you know, retaken. Like I I remember losing a camera once uh, or I lost a SIM card. And I remember telling my friend, I was like, I don't care if we lose the camera or the SIM card. What I care is that I lost the pictures because those I can't get back.
1: Yes. So I think in my case, Uh, It was much more difficult for my parents when we lost the family home because they were in their 60s, and especially for my mother, as you say, losing every trace of her past, every photograph, every memento, every letter she'd received from my father was devastating. And I don't think at the age of 60, it was easy for her to recover. For me, in my early 30s then, it was much more the possible liberation that you mentioned, that suddenly I've been given a blank sheet and I can start fresh and create my life much more along lines that I'd always had as you said um when it came to replacing my things i realized i didn't need 90% of the, the books and uh, clothes and furniture i'd accumulated uh, i'd lost all my notes and so my next three potential books were gone but i realized now I'm, i'll have to write without notes which is much deeper i'll have to write from my heart from memory from imagination uh, i lacked a physical home uh, but of course, my true home, which is my my mother, my wife-to-be, the books I love, the songs that go through my head, I hadn't lost all of that. But also losing the physical home in California made me think, well, the place where I really feel at home is Japan. And so actually in the absence of a house here in California, why don't I move to a two-room apartment in Japan? So in so many ways, the forest fire woke me up and, and did, in fact, allow me to live the way I'd always told myself uh, to live. And I loved what you said about books, because really, books can't teach you about anything. They can't teach you about dealing with loss and grief, as you were saying. They can't teach you about parenting. They can't teach you about falling in love. Uh, They can't teach you really about finding an, an answer to a deep question, which is hence, please, no explanations in the church. The church can speak to us, but the explanations don't.
0: You know, I think there's one other thing that, you know, really struck me is this idea of external paradise. And you actually say, you know, it was a feature of paradise that it to be observed laws that the outsider couldn't fathom any place of angels, as Bali initially seemed to be, has to contain darker sides too, not to mention serpents. As monk Thomas Merton knew that paradise inheres in no place, but only in the mind one brings to it. And yet, you know, there's this sort of, I notion of paradise as being, you know, somewhere on a beautiful beach. Uh, you know, like if you think about the way we advertise your know, vacation travel, it's like come to paradise. You know, we're always looking for a sense of paradise. I think
1: we are, and I think as we grow older, our sense of paradise is, is refined a little. But you're right. Uh, if you go into a travel agency, every place is presenting itself as the Shangri La or paradise. And uh, you mentioned Bali and. Actually, I remember now as we're speaking, I first went, I first went to Bali in my twenties while I was living in New York City. And I got into plane and it took this long series of flights and I arrived in the dark and I went to this little, little cottage. And when I woke up in the morning, a a young guy with a beautiful smile came and brought me fresh mango and a cup of pot of strong tea on the terrace of my cottage. And there were kids playing all around with these angel faces and 45 seconds walk down this palm-shaded lane was this golden beach. I was paying $2 a night for the cottage. I thought, I am in heaven. This is this is the world it was meant to be. And then, a few hours later, of course, night fell, and I began to hear the dissonant, eerie, clanging sound of the jam- gamelan orchestras, and wild dogs were barking, and those boys with beautiful smiles were performing a dance in which they were stabbing themselves in reenacting a legendary battle between black magic and white, and the little girls with angel faces were um, performing a dance while they were in a trance. And I realized I didn't have a clue what was going on, and that indeed Eden is the place with a serpent inside it, and that that something much stronger was happening around me than I could get a grasp on. And in those days, the little lanes of Bali were full of shacks selling mosques. And as I walked past these shacks, there were masks of gods and masks of demons and mythical birds. They were all much too spooky for me to purchase. But finally, I found this little mask that was yellow and red and green and depicted an owl. I thought, this looks very innocuous. So I bought it and I took it back to New York City. And as soon as I arrived back in my apartment, I put it on the wall. And one second later, I had to take it off the wall and put it away where I'd never see it in. There was something so powerful about that mask that I realized um, I'd taken in much more than what I knew what to do with. That I and that you can't take something out of Bali, um, especially if you don't understand all the meanings that, that it carries. Uh, and so it was a very good lesson. I mean, of course, the other thing about paradise is when we arrive at the paradise, um, it's not a paradise to the local most often. Um, And and paradise is kind of a projection that we put on places. Uh, And so in this book, as you said, when I began thinking about what paradise is, I thought, I only trust a paradise that exists in the middle of real life and in the face of death. And this was a book that came out of the pandemic when all of us were in this great state of uncertainty. And I was thinking, how can I find calm and contentment when life is going to bring us so many challenges and when we never know what's going to happen tomorrow or uh, even tonight. And uh, so I did, as you saw, go mostly to war zones or places of conflict and think, if there is a paradise I can trust, it will be one that I find in the middle of turmoil, Um, that I've outgrown the notion that Tahiti or the Seychelles is paradise. I've been to those lovely places. And if they were paradise. I would be the serpent in the garden. I would be, what would I be bringing to beautiful places other than, um, corruption? Mortals and perfection don't, don't go together. And as long as we're living in our flawed human world, I don't think we can dream of finding perfection. And actually, rather than dreaming of perfection, which gets in the way of our accepting what's around us, how can we find everything we need, um, in, in reality? Where I live in, in Japan, when you step into a temple in Kyoto, often written on the ground at the entrance is a simple slogan, look beneath your feet. In other words, this is, this is the best paradise you're going to find right here, right now. And dreaming of other places is only going to keep you away from appreciating what's here. The other thing that you find in the Kyoto temples is there's one temple, very famous for a rock garden with 15 rocks. and. You can't see all of them from the same, from any single angle. So for three centuries, people have been trying to figure out what it means. But just around the corner from that garden, there's a little stone water basin and there's one Japanese character on all four sides and a hole in the middle. And if you put those four characters together with the hole, it, it reads, what I have is all I need. In other words, the way to exile yourself from paradise is wishing things were otherwise or saying, if only I had <laughs> a, a, a Mercedes or if only I had this new iPhone 17, my life would be better. Um, actually, what you have right now is, is the paradise you need to discover. Wow
0: it's, it's funny where you mentioned the idea of, you know, it's not paradise to a local. I lived in Costa Rica for six months and, you know, like most people, I thought it would be paradise. And I realized that I had a much better time when I went there for vacation three years later than I did when I was living there, because when I was living there, it felt like anything but paradise. Everything took forever. Uh, Yeah. There's no sense of urgency. I remember going into a cell phone store. The girl sells me a cell phone. And after she finishes the entire transaction, she says, oh, we don't have any SIM cards. I'm like, you sell cell phones. How do you not have SIM cards? She's like, well, my boss forgot to order some. And then, you know, our local restaurant says we're out of rice. I'm like, rice is one of your main staples. How are you out of rice? That would be like going to an Indian restaurant and having them say they're out of rice. They're like, oh, the guy who brings the rice didn't show up today. I was like, oh,
1: my God, this is anything but paradise. Um, Well, perfect, perfect example. And the other thing I I wouldn't be surprised if you found was that when you turn to the Costa Ricans, they said, oh, yeah, we know what paradise is. It's Santa Monica, (laughs) which New York, and where things work well and there's always rice in the restaurants. And they would they would have some justification for saying that.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, there's one thing, and this is probably my favorite line in the entire book. You say in this vision of an afterlife, the fact of things passing was not a cause for grief so much as a summons to attention. All the light or beauty we could find, we had to find right now. The fact that nothing lasts is the reason why everything matters. Uh, and I just loved that last line so much. It, it, you know, Can you expand on what you mean by that?
1: Well, again, Sweeney, I mean, thank you. I, I, you've, now that's the other most important line in the book, apart from the explanations one. And in fact, uh, my agent had wanted me to title the book uh, the fact that nothing lasts is the reason that everything matters, because she said this is exactly what the whole thing is about. Um So thank you again for picking out exactly the heart of it. And it's so nice of you to read these sentences, because in some cases I've forgotten I wrote them, but I I, you, I I still agree with them amazingly. Um So again, I was writing this during the pandemic, staying with my mother, who is 88 years old, and entering the last few months of her life. And as I was sitting with My mother is her only child and she was growing close to death. I was still trying to think, how can we find everything we need in the midst of this difficulty? And one of the beauties of the pandemic for me was it was the season of taking nothing for granted. And it was easy to be agitated. And of course, everybody was anxious. But every day I woke up and I was so grateful uh, as I wouldn't be right now as the pandemic is easing. Again, I take things for granted a bit and I assume when I wake up, I can get into the car and drive across town to talk to you and uh, enjoy a nice meal and get on a plane to Japan two weeks from now. And for all those months, we weren't um, able to enjoy much of what we got used to. And it, I think in many ways, again, it was a good thing. Um when When I lost everything in the fire, I was actually stuck in the middle of the fire for three hours holding my mother's cat while a man with a hose, was standing in the middle of the road, keeping the flames at bay. And so at the end of that evening, of course, I I was shocked and I was sad to lose everything I had in the world. But I was so grateful I hadn't lost my life. Um, And I thought either I can dwell on everything I've lost or I can dwell on the almost miraculous fact that here I still am and the most important things which are inside me are still alive. And so with the pandemic, I think every day it was possible to wake up and think, yeah, I am. I'm still here. I'm relatively healthy. So is my wife. My mother's still alive. Um, and life is really precarious. And there's no guarantee that any of us would make it through the day. So for me, that was a, a reason to to cherish the day and and to cherish the hour and and not to assume that I have an infinite number of hours because I don't. And no no does any human being. Uh, and it's a simple thing. But I think at any moment speaks to you know, what you were saying earlier about, inner you know, resources. I have a choice to be frustrated about the many things I don't have or to be so glad of the many things I do have. And I think if I turn my attention towards that gladness, my life will go much better. <laughs> the people around me will be much happier to see me than if I'm in a state of frustration. And the beauty of that is none of that has to do with external circumstances. It's entirely, uh, within me and it's within my control by and large because I'm relatively healthy. And so again, almost we have the choice as we're sitting here um, on this day in California, do we choose to look at it as hell or do we choose to look at it as paradise? And how we make that choice is almost going to determine everything. Well, I have
0: two final questions for you. Uh, You have been an author and a writer long before the age of the internet and social media. And, you know, I, I think it, it's apparent in the way you write, because I think there's depth uh, to the way that you both speak and write that I don't see as very common uh, in the modern world. And so I wonder, you know, as a writer, like, what have you noticed about how sort of the profession has changed with the internet, or better and
1: worse? Well, It's changed, of course, as everything has very dramatically. And I think my mandate to myself is that writing has to claim the inner world. It has to find those parts of experience and feeling that a camera or multimedia device can't catch better. I remember when I began writing about, let's say, Cuba or Tibet in the 1980s, I thought none of my friends is likely to go to these places. None of them could even see live images of them. So I went and gathered all the sights and sounds and smells of those places to bring back to people who would never see Cuba or Tibet. Now every single reader of one of my books can see online or on her TV screen more of Cuba or Tibet than I could ever see. so if I go to those places, I have to into memory and silence and, and inwardness and all those things that she couldn't get on the screen and the other part of it which you perfectly single out is attention span. And of course, we're living in a world in which every minute is cut into a thousand bytes now or texts or tweets or whatever it is. And so I try very hard, just as you intuited, to stretch the attention span because I feel we're only as happy as we are absorbed. In other words, I would much rather have one three-hour conversation with a friend than 63-minute conversations around a water cooler. I'm most happy when I completely lose myself in a, in a film or in a concert or in an intimate moment with somebody. That's when I am freed of myself and, and I have my greatest moments. And and so I actually think these quick fixes don't really satisfy us, of course, any more than junk food does. And that at some level, what we're craving, to use the words that you employed, is depth or continuity or attention. And so I work very hard um, to try to envelop the reader and not to entertain or divert her so much, but even through long sentences, stretch her attention span because I think at some level, that's what she really wants. She wants to be engaged in a deep conversation. And that's exactly why through a podcast such as this, that people love podcasts because they can hear humans talk for a long time um, with great attention. And um, as, as, as you said before we came on air, neither of us can see each other now, because if we had our, our cameras on, we would be distracted. But as it is, it's just listening to the voices for a long time. And I think that's the richest luxury that life has to offer. Wow. Beautiful.
0: Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think every, this is probably the worst answer. I think everybody is unmistakable. And there's no question that everyone is unique. And again, I would say no explanations, please, in the church. It doesn't matter where it comes from. But if you and I and everybody who listens to this conversation were to walk to Times Square or Big Sur or the Taj Mahal tomorrow, every one of us would be different. And that's the way it should be because of our experience, our passions, our, our blood. So. Everybody is unmistakable, and the only mistake is to assume you're you're not special or not unique or like everybody else, because we have so much in common that we will never be um, entirely alike.
0: Beautiful. Um, This has been absolutely breathtaking, (laughs) poetic, uh, insightful, and and thought-provoking, as I thought it would be. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up
1: to? Well, again, thank you so much for inviting me and for having a podcast that invites such long, rich conversations. And thank you for reading my book so carefully and extracting all those sentences. Uh, Probably the best way to find out about my book, The Half Known Life, is through the website of my publisher, Riverhead. Um, I do have uh, website, picoiajourney.com. I think the books are the best way to, to talk to me or to find out who I am. You mentioned The Art of Stillness, which is a very nice small book that some people have enjoyed. Um, and I hope The Half-Lone Life gives more information than I could myself.
0: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.